High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Hi, it's Elise Lunan, host of Pulling the Thread. I'm an author, podcast host, and parent who built a long career in media. I grew up in a state of perpetual curiosity, investigating the world and asking a lot of questions. In this show, I chat with culture-defining leaders, thinkers, and experts about this rare moment that we find ourselves in and how to think about our own lives and experiences within a larger social and spiritual construct. Like family relationship has obligations that go both ways. Hopefully there's unconditional love there, but it's also like your family and and the other people in your family see you as family too. But in a job, if you, the, the whole family thing goes one way, you're supposed to give and give and give and give and feel this like guilt and obligation to your company and your coworkers. But your company at any moment can sever those ties. You know, you're is at will employment in in this country and 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 so like that's not part of a, a family thing that's not unconditional your job is totally conditional so says charlie warzel who together with ann helen peterson wrote out of office the big problem and bigger promise of working from home peterson and warzel ditched new york city for the promise of a better work-life balance out west a few years ago which gave them a head start on understanding the reality of working from home before it became a reality for the rest of the world through the pandemic. Both culture, media, and technology journalists for BuzzFeed at the time, they found that the promise of work from home was not a panacea for more time to spend in nature. Like the rest of us, just earlier, they discovered that they were spending even more time performing their work, showing their managers back in New York City that they deserved the privilege of being untethered from a traditional office. Being out of the office only added to their work, anxiety, and overwhelm. So when COVID hit, they were already aware of both the pitfalls and potential of this new reality. Their fantastic book, which just came out, offers a survey of how we find ourselves in this intractable bind today, where for too many of us, our jobs have taken over the center of our lives, and how we can use this opportunity to reshape workplaces for a more sustainable future. In our conversation today, we talk about how we don't prioritize the art of managers, how the idea of time and output is problematic for so many people who are not actually machines, and what a more inclusive and human HR structure might look like if it weren't engineered to avoid abuse and instead could focus solely on providing support. Let's get to our conversation. Your book in so many ways paints such a sad and appropriately realistic portrait of what it is to be a capitalist slave. So you guys were already remote pre-COVID. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And had already were contemplating why remote work presents its own issues and not sort of the freedom that I think we all immediately thought it would give us to work on our sourdough starters and get really fit. Speaking of which, Charlie <laughs> did make his sourdough bread for the first time in six months yesterday. So I'm I'm happy about the sourdough. When it gets dark really early is when I start making bread. <laughs> I feel it's just... But what was the original impetus? Like you guys, I know that you were in New York. I mean, you were within the sort of media culture of New York, right? And then you decided you needed more balance? No, it really was. Well, part of it was that we were sick of New York. Um, 
just New York is a hard place to live. Like everything that is easy in other places is hard there. And then some things that are that are hard other places are easy there, but very few. Um, I think that that's part of what makes New Yorkers so proud is that they do hard things every day. <laughs> and I have no, you know, anyone who wants to live there and wants to stay there, it's great. Like the city is for you. I But I grew up in a small town in Idaho and that is not how I think my ideal scenario, like my ideal life is, but I've also lived in lots of cities. I've lived in Austin. I've lived in Seattle. Like I used to be an academic, so I had to move around a lot. I've lived in lots of different places. And I think that what happened specifically was that I went back to Montana to cover the special election uh, in 2017 and was driving all over the state for uh, a week and a half and felt great. It was like the sliver of Montana or sliver of May when it's really, really beautiful. It's like fake summer before it like goes back to kind of cold and blustery. Before it snows again. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it was just so beautiful. And also I knew how to talk to people, right? Like I, the reporting felt really natural. People trusted me because I like had an Idaho license still because I (laughs) never gotten rid of it. Uh, And we, and I convinced Charlie to come out and like, spend some time there and see how he felt about it. But he wouldn't have been open to that if every time that we had like gone on a trip for an extended amount of time to somewhere else in the United States, we hadn't also been like, well, what if we move here? Well, what if we move here? (laughs) Like we had been trying to think of an argument for ourselves and for our bosses. At that time, we both worked at BuzzFeed News to move outside of the city and it was not a hard sell. And the reason it wasn't a hard sell was because they knew our work ethic and that we were going to just like work just as hard and ridiculous, <laughs> even if we weren't in the New York office. In fact, maybe they understood what we did not yet understand, which was that given the permission to move out of New York and move away from any office that maybe we would work even harder to try to show that we deserved the privilege. And that's what happened. Right. So you were foretelling essentially work from home and the need to be incredibly performative about our effort as a mechanism, as a security mechanism, right? For showing our value, proving our worth and reminding everyone that we were working just as hard, even though we were simultaneously contending with the pandemic and Zoom school and, you know, the collapse of (laughs) society, not seeing our families, all of those things. I certainly, I had a full-time job at the beginning of the pandemic and and felt that and observed that amongst my team of how do you work from home, even though so many of us, as you guys point out, already were working from home. You know, we work everywhere all the time. It's not, it, it, it lost its boundaries sort of with the advent of what, the laptop, the yeah. smartphone, you know, in a way that we haven't really been willing to fully or haven't had even probably the time or the bandwidth to acknowledge how permeable it's become and how insidious. And so I loved the book because it hit on so many of the themes around what does it look like when your entire social world and all of your friends are confined to your coworkers because it's taken over your life and what does it look like to not to have no boundaries and then how do you start to assert them yeah i think i think sort of two things happened when we moved right one was that we we did i especially me did this thing where i treated remote work as a perk and a privilege to be earned every day you have to earn that privilege and obviously compensating and worrying about that privilege being taken away by working so much that you don't actually make any use of the privilege, right? Like if it's a perk, you're just you're just pretending that it doesn't exist in order to earn it. So there's that kind of counterintuitive thing. But the other thing that happened at the same time, and gradually we realized that that was an untenable way to 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 do this and and defeating the purpose. But at the same time, too, the removal from New York 
and that broader for us that broader media culture but more importantly our like our sort of overwhelming and dominant startupy you know buzzfeed culture the removal of that really showed us just how much our lives had become one dimensional as you were sort of alluding to earlier just there like this this way in which you know modern american especially knowledge work it just creeps in creeps into every element and the ways especially your social life and the ways in which you know you either sort of start using this language of we're a family or your coworkers become your best friends or you have all the amenities that you need to get through the day and and the evenings even at work that you never really leave and it just starts pushing all these things out and it's really hard to get the distance and the perspective there sometimes if you don't have somebody in your life or some kind of grounding force that can say hey like this is like all you're doing is is hanging out with your work friends and and all this is collapsing it's one of the things that i think getting out of the office is is really helpful for is that sort of grounding you and sort of seeing the office for what it is and i think the office in this case is papering over you know a, a lot of it's helping to obscure a lot of aspects in our life that have sort of gone out right. of balance. All those other social structures that used to hold us together in community locally too are gone. I loved <laughs> speaking of that idea of of how familial you guys write, but family relationships can just as easily be manipulative, passive aggressive and endlessly confusing. Family members can be racist, exploitative, sexist, transphobic and emotionally abusive, but because they're family, it's often considered impolite or uncivil to confront them about the very real injuries they do to others. As the comedian Kevin Farzad put it on Twitter, if an employer ever says, "We're like family here," what that mean, what they mean is they're going to ruin you psychologically. <laughs> 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 but it is, you know, in prioritizing and in turning work into family, it is also putting it at the center of our lives, as you guys point to, where it becomes wh what we do is who we are and our identity becomes potentially warped. And it's obviously not good for us and it's not good for culture. It's not good for society. It's also not the correct relate. Like, it's not an accurate relationship. Like, family relationship has obligations that go both ways. Ho hopefully, there's unconditional love there, but it's also like your family and and the other people in your family see you as family too. But in a job, if you the, the whole family thing goes one way, you're supposed to give and give and give and give and feel this like guilt and obligation to your company and your coworkers. But your company at any moment can sever those ties. You know, your is at will employment in in this country and. And, and so like, that's not part of a, a family thing. That's not unconditional. Your job is totally conditional. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy, not only because I live in a 1500 square foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. And sure, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus Multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetlitten oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential, to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. 
It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. There is rare family estrangement, not to minimize it, but for the most part, your family's not not going to banish or excommunicate you and or put you into financial peril. <laughs> well, and it's it's right when things get tough too. Like the idea of a family is like when things get tough, we'll try to stick together, hopefully. And with jobs, it's like when things get tough, we're going to have to downsize <laughs> you. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. We're going to make you flexible. And families, we don't typically surveil each other, right? That was such a staggering statistic. And it was so well observed and delivered, which I think that many of us are like, I specifically want to believe that it's not true, even though I know it's, you know, when something comes up in the news around data and privacy, I'm like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. I already feel so stalked online. But was it, did you guys find that was, or maybe that I found this separately, it's 60% of large companies, maybe it was a New York Times piece, are now, because of the pandemic, have started surveilling employees, and they expect it to be upwards of 70% within three years, I think. Not sure I should, I'll find that stat, but you guys write extensively around some of the surveillance tools and how it feels for, for white-collar workers, right? Like, of course we're not being surveilled, but there's a lot to suggest that not only are emails being, I think we all sort of know to be careful about what you put on work email, but that there are other tools couched as pr- productivity hacks, right? But have more well, nah, potentially well, nefarious I think intentions. that like Microsoft Teams data is a really interesting variation of this because they are figuring out like how much time you spend in Teams meetings, right? And how much time that you are spending in like chat clients and that sort of thing. But like that data can either be used as like, I don't know, a cudgel. Like you need to be spending more time in Teams meetings. (laughs) Like that would be like horrible management to be like, clearly this person is spending less time than everyone else in Teams meetings. So they're doing less work. That, that's a really bad and blunt understanding of how that data would work. Or it could be used in, I think, helpful ways. And I've seen this in, in action from different managers who are like, my managees are in too many meetings, right? Like if they, and here's how they're meeting, the number of meetings that they're in every week has gone up like week after week. I'm seeing that they, and I'm also seeing that they're sending most of their emails after work hours. So clearly they are doing more work and they're going to burn out because they are having too many meetings and that's pushing their like administrative and maintenance work into past the traditional bounds of the workday. Or they'll see that like one, like an interesting example of that is that someone who, like a manager who saw that she was always emailing one of her reports during like this period of the time of the day where she, where the report was doing her like deep work. It was like her her section of the day that she was concentrated and the manager the manager was always interrupting it. And so a good manager would be like, "Oh, I will schedule all emails to, you know, not land in this person's inbox from 10 a.m. to noon." So there are ways in which I think this surveillance can be used for good, <laughs> but it has like the, the problem with this technology is that it's only as good or as bad as the company that's, that's using it. Right. And the direct, the, the manager that's using it. So like all technology, it can be used for good or for evil. The other thing I'll, I'll say about well, like one thing, I, probably the biggest lesson that, that we've learned in all the reporting in, in this book and just understand like research about the history of work is that with remote work, especially the fundamental element is trust. Like if you're actually going to make it work and it's trust both ways. Right. And right now there's, 
extremely low levels of trust in the in the workforce you know and one of the biggest ones is obviously managers and executives employers not trusting employees to to do the work there are many different kinds like all technology you know puts out metadata or whatever and and that can be used for surveillance and sometimes you can use that data like Annie was saying to to really help there are some tools out there though that are just exploitative and horrible like keyboard tracking like you know how often are the people typing are their eyes focused on the screen a bunch of times I mean, those are legitimately awful productivity surveillance tools and the 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 biggest problem with them other than the fact that it like chains employees to their computers all day and makes them miserable is that it totally undercuts the number one thing that you need to make actual remote work and flexible work happen and and be successful and th- and that is that level of trust it is a sign that like we are going to extend you this privilege but rather than think of you as an adult who can just do that do the things that you need to do we are going to you know constantly track you and it undercuts it it creates this resentment and the whole enterprise is basically corrupted by that well and that's this idea which you get at which is that work has become, has turned us all into automatons in some way and that we're, our value is measured by our output. It's measured by the time that we're sitting in front of our computers, moving our mouse, mice, <laughs> and that so much valuable work is, it really comes from being fallow, having creative time, having the space to think. And so much of our work is not, it was never intended to be measured by, like you you guys know as writers, like you write in spurts, like you have to think, you have to process. There are times probably when you're like, I just have to go for a long walk. And that's when you unconscious mind is processing all the information and putting it into coherent arguments. Or you can sort of force it through and come up with something that's inherently going to be subpar. But there's this idea of work that across industries, that it's an effort, a time in equals a time out, which I think is wrong, harmful, and will just kill innovation and creative thinking. And I want to go back to, there are a couple things that I think we need to touch on and mentioned good managers. And one of the other, and hopefully sort of something that comes out of COVID is this understanding of management as being not only an art, one where you need to create autonomy and independence for the people who work for you and a mutual respect, but also that it's a full-time job and career track that's not necessarily appropriate for everyone. And we have these work almost in almost any industry where your value, your compensation starts to become attached to how many people you manage, how big is your team. And we've deprioritized this idea of like an individual contributor. I mean, you guys obviously are individual contributors. That's where I'm personally far more comfortable. I would love to just be responsible for my own output and not have to manage a team. But even at the end of my career in a corporation, like I was managing 70, I don't know how many people, 70 people and an individual contributor. And that's typical, I think. And for the people who are good managers on my team, they still were doing too much individual work. And so I think we need to become really clear culturally. If you're a manager, that is what you're doing. And that is, it's like, your parent effectively. And that should be where you're focusing, not on that and the rest of your job. It's really hard because I think that what happened was that in the 1960s and 70s, like the rise of a lot of contemporary, like companies that we think of now as like standard companies, there was a lot of expansion that included the, the level of middle management. So people whose job, only job was managing right? Who were not thought of as individual contributors. And then with the reorganization and downsizing and sloughing of talent that accompanied the seventies and eighties, that level was cut out, right? And that the middle manager came to be seen as a signifier of waste in large corporations and conglomerates and that sort of thing. And so when companies start to rebuild or when startups started to build, the way that they thought of themselves and, and like conceived of their org charts 
to be lithe and nimble and, and all of the things that these older dinosaurs were not was that they didn't have middle managers. They had people who were elevated to the position of manager who still had to do all of their other jobs and who were, who were made managers because they were oftentimes the best performer on their team. They're like, oh, you're really good at this thing. Why don't we get, like, we don't have any way of like showing you that you're really good at this thing. Like, we're not going to just give you more money. So the only way that we can give you more money is by telling you that you are now a manager, even though there's some great Harvard Business Review pieces on this, like the, the skills that are, that make someone the highest performer on their team are almost always <laughs> the opposite of the skills that make someone a good manager, right? If we think about soft management skills in terms of listening, empathy, like just generally thinking and like being expand, like having all of those people skills, they're not necessarily the same things that make you a top performer in your team, but that has become the standard. We call it in the book, add-on management. And that I think it's responsible for a whole slew of just shitty, shitty management. And I do not blame managers most of the time because I think the people that have been thrown in this position, it's the only way that they can achieve advancement within their organizations. And there is so little training. No training, no training and support. And you're sort of, it's sort of like you're deviant if that's not what you want to do or you're selfish. Or you're not ambitious, right? Like if you turn down a management opportunity, then you don't have a future in the company instead of, I don't actually have management skills and would be a bad manager. Yeah. And I have no interest. (laughs) I also think that that you identified a really like important part of this that even in our own discussion gets overlooked, which is this idea of like, we talk about the add-on management in terms of like, they add, like, they add it on to, it becomes, it becomes your job, but also the fact that you're an individual contributor too. I just think like it, it is so important. I mean, that, that has happened in, in my career with the only time I became a manager and not of many employees, it was in addition to this, like all of the same responsibilities of being an individual contributor and all of those, all of those things that Annie was just describing, like empathy, listening skills, they're all in conflict with you also being an individual person in, <laughs> with all the same kind of expectations, because you, you just, you simply, you don't have the time, but also like you just, you don't have the, the incentives, even if you're in almost in a way in competition with the people who, who you're expected to manage, like how, who's going to take the time to, to really be trained when, you know, you also just have to get your own stuff done. It's, it's a, I, I think that's a really crucial point and, and also a, a really good point in favor of like treating management as an art. Yeah. And a highly specialized skill that some people are exceptional at and others should skip. <laughs> And that that's okay and that it doesn't necessarily impair your ability to contribute to an organization or do quality work. And and particularly, you know, for me, the the individual contributor work is where, I mean, I loved my team, but my whole mode of managing is like, how do I get you all to a place of autonomy so you can really manage yourself? And then I can clear hurdles and get you resources and elevate issues, which I think actually in a perverse way made me a good manager, even though I was not very hands-on. But the real value, I think, in my work was what I was able to individually contribute. And that's certainly what made me feel safe and secure and that I, my job was justified because of what I was personally was able to deliver. And I think that that gets into the sort of the psychosomatics of the fact that nobody really feels particularly safe or secure in this gig economy and in this world where you could lose your job. I mean, that that's the underlying idea. And it it goes to going back a little bit, Charlie, to what you were saying too about the lack of trust. And it really, it goes to the way that HR benefits are designed. I loved that part of the book because I think it's something that, you know, obviously we're having social conversations on a, about paid family leave, but in the construction of benefits, one, you guys write about how the system has been engineered to protect against a sliver of bad actors instead of one that will engender authentic trust and respect, and that they're trying to build systems that will resist abuse rather than help out the max amount of people that they can. 
um, which I think is really important, this idea of like always assuming that people are going to take advantage and that they're not really sick and that is problematic. And then also I loved the conversation that you guys opened up about people who choose to never have kids or who and I was having this conversation with my brother who's gay, never wants to have kids. And he's like, it's interesting because like, what if I wanted to take a sabbatical? Currently, like there's no, you you mentioned this, there's no structure. We don't have benefits that think about the whole course of someone's life. It's almost like now they're also being engineered for this idea that people will only be with you for a little bit of time. And hopefully you don't get a woman when she's right. in her procreative right. prime. And, <laughs> like... Hopefully you don't get someone who's going to get sick or who has parents who are aging. Yep. Yeah. And it, and it breeds so much of that, like that resentment and that, and that just like, it, there's the sort of the, the most basic, right. Which is like, we, we, we don't trust you not to, you know, take advantage of this policy, but, but even, even more so it's just, it breeds a, a resentment of the, the way that uh, David Perry is the person who came up with this this sort of framework, which is this universal design for work life balance, is, is what he calls it, and it's based off of a lot of the, you know, the universal design in in disability studies, and this idea that you know a lot of universal design elements like curb cuts for for wheelchairs and cars is one of the kind of classically cited examples that curb cuts help a lot of things, including cyclists and and uh, and other people who you know um, like the elderly, <laughs> t- tons of tons of different people that that the effects trickle down. And the the one thing that he mentioned in in our interview with him that that just has stuck with me is just that everyone whether they're able-bodied or disabled or, or like whoever, whoever you are, uh, whether you're rich or poor or whatever, every single person is going to have some adverse event in their life. Some, some, something that is going to require some help from other people and probably your employer at some point. And it's not clear when that is. And our policies right now are designated for, we will help you if it falls into a very specific category that we have defined early on, right? If your adverse event happens, if your family member gets sick and you've happened to work for the company for five years, well, congratulations, you're available for a sabbatical and you can take that time to be with your family. Uh, If it happens three years in, well, sorry, you're out of luck. And so this idea of just granting people this blanket understanding is not only is it inclusive, but it helps sort of tamp down. It gives you a little bit of that, like that, what the safety net is missing. It gives you this ability to say like, okay, if something happens, there are people there who will help me out. And I think that that really matters in instilling trust in an organization. I mean, that, that, that is how people they're in companies all the time, they you know try to say, oh, we're here to support you. How we want you to feel supported. We'll support <laughs> people by giving them that that actual thing that says, okay, I'm going to walk this tightrope in my life, and if for some reason I fall off, there's I'm not you know it might still be bad, but I'm not going to be you know ruined by this in some way. And and I think that that's an under undercurrent in so many elements of American life right now of people who just feel like there is nothing there to catch them if they go down. I woke up at 2 a.m. last night drenched in sweat, throwing bedding off of me. Every pet was also on top of me, which probably didn't help. Many nights I have the opposite problem where I'm hunting in the hall closet for extra blankets in the wee hours because I'm freezing. In part, this is because my husband and I have wildly different sleep temperature preferences, and I'm cold because he's left all the sliding doors in our house wide open. But there's actually a solution I've come to learn, and I'm all about a sleep solution because we know how important good, uninterrupted sleep is for every facet of health. Have you heard about Chili Pad by Sleep Me? It's a bed cooling system designed to revolutionize the way you sleep naturally. The Chili Pad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Chili Pad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees. You can also choose a different setting than your partner, so you each get what you need. What I want? a cool mattress with piles of blankets on top. ChiliPad believes sleeping at the optimal temperature helps people naturally reach their highest potential physically and mentally. 
visit www.sleep.me slash thread to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code thread. This offer is available exclusively for Pulling the Thread listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.me slash thread because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. It's wild. And then it, you know, it inspires a lot of the behavior that you guys talk about in the book around productivity culture, performative work in times of anxiety or stress and this need to sort of evidence like I'm here, I'm working. We then start scheduling more meetings and being more, you know, making more busy work for a lot of people in a way that's just not helpful. And you sort of sends us on this downward spiral of tedious, empty days instead of instead of having feeling like we have the agency and autonomy to sort of be like, oh, I'm in a really intense workflow and I'm going to go at it for 10 hours and I'm going to do essentially a week's worth of work. I mean, that's sort of how I personally work. It's never been able – I've never been able to sort of <laughs> – corral it properly and confine it. It's either I am on or I am off, which doesn't really necessarily work in a normal structure. And I think in all of your research, I'm curious, and I know you talk about sort of, is it a a New Zealand corporation or entity that has really figured this out? How do you, how how can companies start planning with individuals around sort of what done looks like, to quote Brene Brown, but what is their job and what what are the deliverables? What are the appropriate KPIs so that people can be like, I'm actually achieving what I said. And then it doesn't really matter where I am when I do it or how much time it takes me as long as the work is what the work needs to be and at the level that's required. Like, how do we start changing work culture in that way? Well, I'll say like moving kind of backwards and in the question to looking at the example of um, the New Zealand trust company. Trusts are like it's like very old fashioned sort of company, like a staid company that implemented successfully implemented the four day work week. And I love this example because I think a lot of times people think of any sort of newfangled work operation as like something that is uniquely available to startups. Right. And so I'm going like that, like, oh, this would never work for a bank. Right. But this company, which is essentially a, like very in line with how we think of an old fashioned institution of a bank. The CEO was like reading The Economist on a flight one time and read this thing about how like, oh, if you reduce the amount of time that people are working, but you say we still want to you know, produce the same amount of work that your workforce actually sometimes produces more and they're happier and retention goes up and it's just overall a really good policy for your institution. And you have to think creatively about how to implement it that will work in a way that will work with the rhythms of your own institution, but it's possible. And this guy just happens to be like an innovative thinker in charge of an old fashioned institution and was like, let's give it a try. And it, uh, like that decision on the top and he got, then he got buy-in from like the upper executives from different outposts of the organization across New Zealand and then that trickled down too and so you have to have someone I think on top who is on board with this idea that less work can be better work and that if we have very clear expectations about the work that is expected and we say if you can get those done then you have this extra time then people will do it and even have increased productivity, right? And, you know, in the book, we talk a little bit about like what to do if your organization is not necessarily on board with this, right? If the upper levels are not on board and how you can start with something as simple as like asking your manager to sit with you and revisit your job description. Because I think a lot of people have, if they have been with an organization more than a year or so, there is some description drift, right? They've taken on responsibilities that were not in their original job description. So even just saying something as 
but seemingly benign. It's like, let's take a look at my job description and see if we can have it mirror what I'm actually doing is a great way for any employee to revisit with their direct manager what they are actually doing and what they are responsible for. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. And I think, you know, you touched on this too. I remember it was like keys. I mean, I think it was like a lot of, at the advent of technology, there was this idea, this fantasy, what proved to be a fantasy, but was legitimate idea, which I think we've kind of forgotten, which was that this technology that we have is supposed to enable us to condense our work, <laughs> to, to minimize, to make us more yeah. efficient and to and do in, less work, <laughs> to do less work so that we would have more time to sort of yeah. be with our families and our communities and, and ideate. And instead it's like, oh, you're more efficient. Now we have like all this more time to plant with work. Yeah. But we're not built for that. Right. Right. Like, yeah. Well, and I think like the most vivid example, and this is included in part in the book, is when these automation technologies were really spreading in the office in the 1970s, say, there was a real pushback from secretarial workers who were unionized in some loose and some in some solid ways, pushing against the the toxicity, the actual health toxicity of some of these new technologies. Like they hadn't figured out how to make the monitors on computers so that they wouldn't give people headaches all the time, right? Or they hadn't figured out how the chemicals um, and radiation, like different things associated with like Xerox machines weren't making people feel like physically ill. And I, this seems very odd, I think, to us now, now that we don't think of like anything of putting our phone under our pillow when we sleep. But at the time, it was actually making secretaries feel like shit a lot. And so they were pushing back. And a lot of the executives were like, no, it is so amazing that now, you know, you used to be expected to do 10 reports a day, right, to type up 10 reports a day. And now you can do that in half the time. And the secretaries were like, yeah, but then you expect us to do another 10. And there was no consideration of like, yes, you're doing it faster, but there's still a real mental exhaustion associated with doing double of those reports. And no one thought, oh, well, maybe because they're doing more reports that they should be paid more. And or <laughs> what if we just like had them do the same amount of reports and, and had them work less, right? Or had everyone work less. It's always been in service of more profits instead of more time for the individual. Pulling the Thread is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes Max, my oldest, tells me he wants to go in the back of the house and talk. What he means by this is purely the verb. He doesn't want to have a conversation. He wants to talk to vent and unload, to fill me with factoids, mom, want to know 40 things about acid rain, but more often to get things off his chest. It's fascinating to listen to him and what he perceives to be injustices, annoyances, and harms. I recognize that in those moments, he doesn't want advice or for me to higher mind him or for me to justify his own feelings to him, but simply to be a container for the one-sided stream, to just listen. I recognize what he's doing because I do it every week too, in therapy. I was thinking just the other week that it's rare to find someone who will just listen, maybe point out some patterns or hold me accountable when I say something wild. Wait, Elise, pause. Do you really feel that about yourself? Or why do you think you care about this so much? But aside from these moments of intervention when my therapist makes me reflect or feel, I'm doing the talking, and it helps me feel so much freer. Thank God for therapy. This is one of the reasons I'm very excited for therapeutic solutions like BetterHelp. They have licensed therapists who are available worldwide and specialize in depression, anxiety, sleep disturbances, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQA issues, grief, and self-esteem. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with the therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right 
therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com PTT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash P-T-T. There's just no way of correlating effort and time and concentration with output. I mean, I think we all know it's like you can sit and work in a really concentrated way for two hours and just blow your blow your energetic wad. Like you're done. You're bo- <laughs> you know, you're cooked. And then you sit yeah. there and look busy for yeah. six hours. Yeah. You're just like email, like clicking between browsers and emailing. Right. And taking care of everything that you now don't have timed, and then you're haunted. It's it's a it's a very it's a very insidious loop. Going back to the perpetual guardian, I also loved their idea, which I think every workplace that should adopt, where they would install flags at their workspaces, red, yellow, or green, so that individuals could indicate whether they were available to chat. Which I think is brilliant. As someone who like when I was in an office, I could be both the office pest and also the office introvert. And, you know, it's hard when people are, when you're interrupting people's intense work workflows. So what do you think is going to happen? I'd love to hear from both of you if you could prof- offer a prophecy about what you think work post-COVID is going to look like. Is it going to be a snapback? I know so many of my friends have scattered to the country. I think that we're a lot of people are setting this up in this false binary of, you know, we are either all going back to the office and we're going to be like, well, that was a fun experiment. And it's just like, it's over and we don't learn anything from it. Or this idea that like, we're all going to be like working from home. And in like in 10 years, like there won't even be an office and you'll like regale your grandchildren with the story of this weird time. We all used to go into a building. I think both of those are, are false because I think that work, has to be collaborative at times. And then it also works so much better when it can be done in an isolated, flexible manner. So I think there we end up, we will end up in a in a hybrid situation, which unfortunately happens to be sort of the highest degree of difficulty to pull off. I think this is like a negotiation that takes place. And negotiation is like, you know, a, a nice way of putting it. But I think it's going to be this like kind of struggle for five to 10 years of us figuring out what the equilibrium is. And it's going to vary from company to company. And there's going to be, you know, it's going to be unequally distributed and it's going to be unequal in the amount of fairness and autonomy that workers get, you know, like sort of high labor power tech employees are going to get the best version of it. And there's going to be people who get the eye tracking software that, you know, it just like kind of is the worst possible version of it. And we're going to need to, you know, be mindful of that and try to, you know, fix those inequalities with it. But I think what is rather profound and and meaningful about this moment is that, and it kind of comes back to what we talked about earlier. It's this notion that for so long, employees have wanted flexibility. And part of it is because they can see all this all these technological tools that grant it, right? Like, okay, I'm, I'm connected to my devices all the time. I can do my work from anywhere. So now I want, I want the affordances of that. I want that opportunity. And then they were told by employers time and time again, if you leave, like the office is the thing that holds all this together. If you pull that thread and leave the office, the whole thing unwinds. Company culture starts to go away or become toxic. Productivity drops. Well, we just did this really fascinating societal experiment where we where we found out that that wasn't true. And people are looking at that and it's this sort of like opening of a lot of people's minds to say, well, if that was bullshit, what else is bullshit about the way that I've been doing this and the way that I've been told specifically by employers that this is the only way to do it. And so that like kernel, that's a really hard thing to put back, that sort of shift in mindset. And I think that that is where you will start to see more and more, even if it isn't directly related to remote work versus it's this sort of skepticism that is breeding and this understanding of maybe I need to challenge some of some of these, you know, these quote unquote first principles of working 
And that I think is going to be the, the legacy of this, regardless of whether it has to do with where you work, it's going to be how we work. I mean, Charlie just like did the slam dunk. We sometimes talk about in interviews, like one of us is uh, the person who like is saying like smart, okay things. And then the other person, like it like jumps down the, from the top ropes of the wrestling ring and like does the, does the really good answer. To be and fair, I rarely get to be that person. So I was pretty, <laughs> I was pretty jazzed about this, this opportunity to come off the top rope with the, you know, the people's elbow. Yeah, that's exactly what just happened. Um, yeah. I think the only thing that I would add, and this is totally in, in building on what Charlie said is that it's like, it's going to take some hard work and it's going to not be, it's going to be messy, right? Like flexible work is messy to figure out. And I hope that we have some tolerance for that process of figuring it out. The only other thing that I would also add is that the future of, of figuring out how all of this works is really dependent on us figuring out some really vital care systems, right? So the childcare system is broken, right? It is a market failure and it demands investment from the federal level. So we have to continue to make that happen, right? And we also have to figure out elder care because I think that we are staring down this tunnel, this abyss of like what elder care, the, the reality of elder care is going to look like as boomers continue to age. And I do not mean this in at all like a, a like coarse way. It's just, it's a reality that Gen X has been dealing with what it's like to be the sandwich generation for a long time. And I think that as more and more people are dealing with that reality and the, the options just continue to decrease, like we're just, we're going to have a crisis where people either aren't getting the care that they need, or there's too much reliance on individuals and no safety net for how you can continue to provide elder care for someone in your family and, and continue to work, right? Like we're just not figuring this stuff out. I think that right now the attitude is like, well, something like someone will make it work. And usually that is the unpaid work of women or the, the poorly paid work of women of color. So we need to figure that stuff out. And that needs to happen on a societal level. It can't happen on a corporate level or it can, but it's not complete and it can't just happen on the individual level. Preach. Okay, that was pretty good too. No, I think, you know, it's it's about too bringing the humanity back into the office and this idea, I mean, you can apply it to any system, medicine. We are moving past, again, past binaries or this idea that all people are effectively the same and starting to recognize like how personalized nutrition needs to be and how personalized work needs to be and that we all deserve this is where we're spending the foundation of our days and our lives and we all deserve bespoke treatment and <laughs> and a plan and guidance and management and management is not a great word but support as we consider sort of how to how to use our t our very limited time here so anyway thank you for your book i it's impressive that you guys got the I mean, obviously you had a head start on this work from home concept, but it's still impressive that you guys got this out so fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it was it involved, you know, a lot of uh, destruction of work life balance while we were writing it in like the two months of real concentrated writing time. But that's something that I think uh we want to talk about more too moving forward is like sometimes it's not just about like finding balance within your day, like flexibility yeah. within your day. It's also about like rhythms within your week and rhythms within your year, right? Like uh, you, you, we were talking about earlier, like a concentrated burst of work for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then like these recovery and recuperation times as well. Yeah. I think that that's so important. And there really are so few. I mean, obviously, there are jobs in various industries. If you're a waiter, you got to physically be there. And there's a certain boundary around that shift. If you're a receptionist, etc. But so many jobs aren't, aren't built like that. And so we need a new paradigm. Well, and even, you know, sometimes I think that we discount the, the amount of jobs that are non-office jobs that are more seasonal. Like, you know, I have friends who've worked like the fish canneries in, in Alaska, where you go up there for a summer and you work really, really hard. 
and it sucks, but they pay you really, really well. And then you spend the rest of the year doing what you want, right? There are different models for this as well. And, and, and the one thing I would say about the, we, we, we tried to get at in this, in this book is that like, we need all of those, those social safety net things. Like if there's one, if there's one thing I'm pessimistic about, it's that none of this, none of this, the the real meat of the change can happen without, you know, like buy-in from the executive level. And also this, like, we need it, you know, it has to be buttressed by policy and like real changes to social safety nets. And, and that's, that's really difficult. But the one sort of thing that I, I think we, we hang a little bit of hope on is this idea that if all of us with the privilege to do this type of knowledge work that is that doesn't require us to be in there or be on the front lines in some kind of way, if we can find ways to reorient and reframe the way that we think of of our jobs and the way that we conceptualize ourselves, not not as like this you know lofty vocation, but as labor, and and sort of reorient ourselves and have you know more of a community focus and and just have more time to give ourselves to things that we care about, including our communities, that's a small thing. It's not going to change the entire world immediately or forever, but it's also really meaningful to reposition this. Like we are on this, you know, work treadmill and it's so individualist in the mindset that it makes it really hard to have a collective spirit. And I think that's really like one of the hopes of this is that like, yes, it is for a privileged sector of the workforce, but like it is still just so important in something that we can do to help reframe this and hopefully, you know, like make, make the, help make changes in the world instead of just like running on the treadmill and being like, well, they can, they can fend for themselves because I don't have time for this. Um, so I, I, I just, I wanted to add that in there, that that's something we're really hopeful for. I think sometimes about this woman, Ann Emerson, who I work with occasionally as sort of an additional form of therapy. She does muscle testing, which is strange, but cool, where she gets at your limiting self-conscious beliefs. And she told me, that I am never allowed to take any work. So besides writing my book and doing my podcast, I'm doing some consulting projects. And she said, I am never allowed to be paid by the hour because the way that I work, and I don't think that I'm unusual. I think a lot of people, particularly people who work in more, I don't even know that I would say that it's more creative people. I think we all probably process in this way but that I can deliver in 15 minutes sometimes. I work in really intense bursts, and I I don't think I'm unusual. And to do that and amortize it over eight hours would destroy me. And we don't really get credit for all that unconscious processing that we do. And I remember interviewing Srini Pillay, who's a psychiatrist at Harvard, fascinating guy. And he wrote a book called, I think it's called Tinker Taylor uh, Doodle Try or something like that. And he talks about sort of the power of the unconscious mind. I think our conscious minds, we can process 60 bits a second. And the unconscious mind can process like 11 billion, 11 million bits, something staggering. You don't really prioritize that in work culture. So my wish for the future is that we start to allow for the natural rhythms in our lives so that we can maintain that energetic balance and not let workplaces destroy us. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at theelisepodcast.com. Please sign up for my newsletter. I promise I won't spam you. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunan to get updates on new episodes. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, 
please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread, available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts, i.e. wherever you're listening right now. I also want to thank you in advance for sharing any episodes with friends who you think might like the show because that is how podcasts grow. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Serena Reagan, Mary-Kate McDonough, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next week.